Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and tonight I'm joined by my co-host, Laurel Hightower. Um, Shane couldn't be with us this week. Uh, we miss you, brother. Can't wait to have you back on. Um, and we're excited to welcome Mike Thorne to the show, whose new novel, Shelter for the Damned, is out now through Journal Stone. And uh, Mike, it's great to have you on here. Um, I don't think we've ever had like a, a formal conversation or anything like that, but um, I've been familiar with your work um, since your uh, release, uh, Darkest Hours. I believe I got the title right. I hope so. It's been a while, but I really loved it. Um, and that was back in the horror bookshelf days. So it's nice to have you on here to talk about your new book. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm a big fan of both of yours um laurel i loved uh, whispers in the dark and I, I i your your newest is on my queue i will get to it but i've heard nothing but great things so thank oh, you both thank you thank you so much yeah. i appreciate that mike loved it yeah and um so normally we have our guests kind of give a new kid at school speech you know just a little bit about yourself um some of the books you've written anything you'd like listeners to know about mike thorne Cool. Yeah. So um, my debut short story collection, Darkest Hours, came out in 2017. It's getting a deluxe reissue later this year through Journal Stone, which I'm very excited about. That's going to, yeah, it's going to have a section of um, my film criticism and author notes for every story and a oh, foreword wow. by someone who I really love in the, the horror world. So I am hyped for that. That is um, exciting. I didn't know that. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. I was actually just batting ideas around with um, Scarlet Algae at Journalstone about cover concepts and stuff. And I'm I'm so excited for that to come out in the world. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, Scarlet. Scarlet is wonderful. She's great. She's fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've loved working with Journalstone. They're, they're great, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Scarlet is uh, she was uh, is she assistant publisher now? Uh, she's, I know her as managing editor, but I could managing be, editor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, she, she saved my butt on editing quite a bit. She was like, Laurel, this isn't a thing. I'm like, thank you. For, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I didn't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Ra raising the glass to editors everywhere. Hell yeah. Yeah. No. And she's one of the really good ones for sure. Yes. Um, yeah. And I guess, uh, my new novel shelter for the damned, my debut novel, uh, just came out on February 26th. And I have another short story collection coming out through journal stone later this year, totally new collection called peel back and see. Um, nice. and I write film criticism as well. I guess that was built into my description of the darkest hours reissue. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I'm teaching college virtually right now in lockdown. Uh, which is strange and interesting. It's a learning curve. I would say, but wow. I mean, especially for everybody being in insanity for the last year, you have, you have been cranking it out. You've been kicking butt. That's, I mean, this is an excellent year for you. That is fantastic. Thank you. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and it's great to be with such a, such a stellar publisher. Journal Stone's one of the best in the game, I think. So I'm, I'm so grateful. That's excellent. And like you, you know, when you mentioned batting around cover concepts, that's just one of those things I think that they really excel at, too. I mean, and that is, you know, that's so huge with publishing, obviously, is is people who are going to put into it to get, you know, to get that very individualized, very striking cover. So uh, I'll be excited to see what what those look like. 
Thank you. Yeah, and it was so cool. I mean, for Shelter for the Damned, um, Scarlett kind of asked, do you have anyone in mind who you could see doing this cover? And I, I just kind of floated the idea of Trevor Henderson doing it. And she was totally game. And Trevor was like such a pleasure to work with. He was really collaborative and engaged and responsive. And we went through, he, he, he developed so many sketches until we came up with this kind of black light, um, almost like haunted house attraction palette. And I, I love the way it turned out. Oh, yeah. Well, so that's that's always interesting. I don't feel like we always talk a whole lot about kind of how that comes about. Do you mind to talk about, um, you know, how you'd find Trevor's work and, and what made you decide that you had were you already kind of keeping him in mind for something like that or? Um, I had been a fan of Trevor's art for a while. I think I was following him on Instagram and he I guess he was a big fan of Darkest Hours. He shouted it out on Twitter and then he and I connected um, based on that. Um, and that was a while ago, but I just, he, he was one of the first, he, he was just the first person who came to mind when Scarlett asked about cover designs. Cause I think there's something about the way Trevor plays with like horror movie and monster movie nostalgia through a really disturbing lens. I thought that was a cool kind of aesthetic for this book. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, like like you said the kind of the palette and stuff for the cover like you know horror especially horror fiction it has you know such a you know rich history of like those alluring grabbing covers and i really think that this is one of those um especially because it's different like you said it definitely has kind of like that black light feel um, and same thing with uh, Darkest Hours, which I'll be interested to see kind of the redesign on that, because I remember the um, original edition, you know, it kind of had like that old school like VHS feel to it. So, so far, um, all your books have had great covers. And also, I just want to throw out there, um, I'm glad to hear that it's coming out through Journal Stone, because I remember, like, I was going to tell someone about it the other day, but then I was like, oh, man, it's out of print. So <laughs> it's good that uh, it's going to be coming back out for people to read. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you spreading the word, too. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be, like, better than ever. You know, it's it's just like having that section of my horror film criticism and the author notes. I think it's just going to flesh it out into something new and exciting. And, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm so, so hyped for that. Yeah, yeah, especially the author notes. Like, um, I I don't know about you, Laurel, and I don't know about uh, you, Mike. I think I know your answer, but um, I've always loved when authors have kind of put those in their collections, whether it be at, you know, all at the end or kind of interspersed throughout the stories, because it's always interesting to kind of see the process that went into those stories. And, you know, as a reader, you might read it and kind of think that the idea originated one way. And then you're surprised to find out that, you know, it could be, say, a completely over the top story. And then you find out the kind of seed of that idea came from something, you know, in everyday life or something like that. So I've always just found that fascinating. Yeah, I, I agree in particular, just because the short story form is so, I don't know, it's just such a cool format to play with um, just different ways of expressing things in different ways, in particular in horror with approaching it. So it is, it's really cool to to kind of see, you know, what sparked things like that. 
Yeah, I, I've always loved them too. I think, yeah, any any insights into the process is always fascinating to me. I love reading that kind of stuff. I agree. Well, and and on that um, on that note, I'm very interested to hear because so I mean you've had you've had a, a quite a, a lot of short fiction out. Um, you know, not not just your collection, but you had the um, the two. Uh, would you call them like are they short stories or would you call them more like novelettes that you had through the short sharp shocks? Yeah, those are short story. I'd say it's like a short story duology, two kind of thematically connected short stories. Okay, yeah. So you, I mean, you've had which I I absolutely loved by the way, and in particular when we were just talking about you know oh you know the author notes and like I yeah both of those I'm just like mm-hmm, I would love to know what sparked those thoughts because <laughs> honestly like for both of them there are lines that I'm still like oh yeah mm-hmm, that <laughs> uh, I remember that. <laughs> so, Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very, I'm interested to know, you know, what kind of made you transition into this, into writing the novel and also, you know, was it something more that you had been working on for a while and it's just come to fruition or were you kind of switching gears? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess this might be like the Shyamalan twist moment of this interview. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I actually wrote Shelter for the Damned before anything in Darkest Hours. Um, Wow. Yeah, I finished the first draft of it a long time ago, and and it actually originated, uh, originally it evolved into kind of an experimental novel, like basically an epic prose poem with very little punctuation. I think I only used commas and forward slashes. I was um, liberally lifting ideas from one of my favorite writers, Hubert Selby Jr., and I had these kind of concrete poetry sections where the shack was being formed out of slashes and commas um and and one of my writing mentors uh randy schroeder encouraged me to kind of reshape it into something more conventional slash publishable slash readable uh so thankfully (laughs) i had the uh the presence of mind to listen to his his feedback and um yeah it's just been like a long journey kind of um reworking that novel into the shape it's in now um so yeah i I wrote it before anything in darkest hours it's weird to uh to finally have it out there in the world after all this time yeah oh go ahead rich sorry oh no it's okay i just wanted to jump in real quick because um i found it interesting that you said that mike about how it came before darkest hours because it didn't even hit me until like today, I think, um, you know, I'd finished it a couple days ago, but I was like, you know, it kind of reminded me. And then I was like, oh yeah, like they're two totally different things, but it kind of reminded me of one of the stories in Darkest Hours. I believe it was a new kind of drug, um, which, you know, kind of had, it seemed almost like maybe they were connected, but I don't think they are because one's very different from the other but i just thought that that was cool that this kind of came first because i initially when i thought of that i thought maybe it was the other way that's really interesting you know what you're the second person who's made that connection um philip elliott when he interviewed me for into the void uh pointed that out too that that he saw a kind of um thematic or narrative connection between those two pieces and i it's not something that i was conscious of necessarily but now that um you've both noted it i think it's definitely there i mean both of them have uh deal with addiction uh or taking a trip of some kind 
uh, finding a portal in this very banal suburban space. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see that. And, and they're both about, um, without giving too much away, I guess, characters mm-hmm. who want to disappear or escape in some sense. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I, I think it's really interesting too, that you mentioned that it, that it was like initially the, the format that it was initially in, because one of the, you know, the, the kind of free flowing prose, um, because one of the things that really struck me about it was just sort of how almost poetic a lot of the uh descriptions were you know Mm -hmm. and it's and it's just like I don't know you're just your gift with language on it was just really very stunning because there can definitely be a point at which you know that crosses into like the the I, I don't know just maybe taking away from the story but this was always just very like I mean um and I'm not super great with like uh like visualization I guess and I felt like the the way that you described everything like I could just see everything in such great detail um so that's really interesting to know that that's how you wrote it in the first place and that it sort of translated so well that way thank you yeah I think um I had a a kind of a range of stylistic influences so Hubert Selby Jr. is definitely like one of my biggest influences I read him at just the right age and I think He's just kind of locked into my creative DNA in a sense. Um, But I was also reading a lot of Jim Thompson at the time that I wrote this and the way Jim Thompson um, pulls pulls his uh, often really disturbed protagonists um, psychological interiority into the prose style. I love the way he does that. And then, you know, I, I, I of course, I was studying the giants of the genre like Poe and and King and Lovecraft I think was a big influence in terms of those more kind of I maybe you could call them like purple prose sections or whatever but I find Lovecraft is is the most ingenious at kind of piling on the adjectives in such a strategic way so those were some of my big stylistic influences oh yeah that's interesting that it seems like so much like I don't know um there's just so much it you know that goes into that. I'm I'm interested in your processes to like how because it just seems like you're you're very thoughtful about all of it. You've just you know got a whole lot of this like there. I mean, well, I guess my first question for everyone is always like, are you an outliner or are you a pantser? Uh, I wish I was an outliner, Laurel. I think I would save myself a lot of grief if I was, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I have not yet managed. I find I'm often um like telling myself, no, you're going to outline this one. And then I just jump in prematurely. Um, it's a process I'd like to try out in the future. Um, I'm, I'm like neck deep in another novel right now. And I'm at a point where I'm like, well, fuck, if I had outlined uh, <laughs> some of these problems. But you know what? There's always the editing process. So maybe I'm doomed to be a pantser. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you say that. And Laurel would probably have more insight into this than myself Um, because there probably, you know, are some problems with this theory. But I I think we've had a couple guests where, you know, they they say that they're pantsers. But if you think about it, they almost kind of treat like that very first draft that they kind of, you know, just hop in and go full speed ahead, almost like an outline. so, Laurel, I don't know if you think there's any kind of like what your thoughts are on that or um, you, Mike. Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
it it really kind of I guess in large part part of the reason why I asked about whether you were an outliner too is because again it seems like there is so much that is going into what you're writing that seems very I guess purposeful. Um, so to me, it's interesting that that doesn't require, you know, a very detailed outline and, and sort of like a, you know, a big brainstorming session of what exactly you want to be included in there. That's interesting that that is much more, um, I guess, organic for you. Uh, cause I, because I feel like to have all of that woven in, I would really need to, <laughs> I would really need to put a lot of work into an outline on that. So, so that's, um, yeah, that's that's interesting that you write organically in that fashion. Do you outline? I mean, like Whispers in the Dark had such a tight narrative shape, I thought. It seemed to me like a novel that was outlined, but I, I don't know. It's hard it's hard to tell sometimes. Um, it actually was not, and it 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 is a big part of why I started doing it because <laughs> I had to I had to rewrite that thing so many times um, yeah. because I, I would just go off on these tangents and I'm like, look, another ghost, ooh, another one over here, and at some <laughs> point, you know, when someone else reads, they're like, there's, I'm I'm sorry, I don't know what all these ghosts are doing, why they're here. I'm like, I don't, they're just, they're fun. I wanted another ghost. <laughs> so to, to me, to kind of reel in the supernatural, sometimes I have to be like, okay, Hightower, what is your point? So I am, yeah, I'm now a very staunch outliner. I'm not, but I, I just feel like my thought process, the way my mind works and stuff, I will meander too much, you know, without it. So um, I'm always, I'm always interested in people who are able to get, you know, like a beginning, a middle and an end without holding themselves to a very strict, uh, guide basically yeah when i'm teaching um writing or talking about writing i often turn to uh this kind of i guess you could call it a metaphor that uh the aforementioned randy schroeder uh explained to me which is he said some people uh plan hot which means the pre-planning stage is where all the creative juices are flowing and and that's when they're feeling really excited about the process. And then the writing is actually kind of cold. That's the more mechanical, technical process. Um, I think no matter what your process is, you need that cold moment. I think everybody needs to edit. But for me, the cold process is the editing. That's where I'm, you know, very surgical and really trying to be as ruthless as I can in terms of shaping the thing, um, because I do write hot. That's the fun part for me is just, you know, discovering what the story um, is is going to turn into and what the characters are, are going to do. Like, um, I had a sense that things would end badly for Mark and for a lot of the other characters in Shelter for the Damned, but I didn't know exactly how. I just knew roughly where the destination was. Hmm. I think that's I mean, that's helpful, though, if you if you sort of have, you know, at least an idea of how things are going to go um, with that. But but, yeah, I mean, I can kind of see that in particular sort of looking back at how things happen with them. It it feels very organic. You know, It doesn't feel like any of them know what's going to happen or, um, you know, where their path is going to lead. And And I did. I really enjoyed I felt like. Um, and particularly because I never was a teenage boy. Um, I've, I think it's interesting to read, you know, the sort of coming of age type of um, mindsets on this. And Marx was so interesting to me. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to talk some about him as a character, you know, where he kind of came from and, and how you how you developed who he would be. Yeah, so a part of it was those influences I talked about earlier, Hubert Selby Jr. and Jim Thompson, I think. 
I was just really excited by and um, felt drawn to these narratives about people who are consumed by their own demons. It seems despite whatever efforts they might take. Um, I think I've always connected to those kinds of narratives as someone who has in large part always felt a little bit like an outsider, has always struggled with anxiety and depression. Um, so I was I was a lot of it was kind of like pulling the skeletons out of my closet. What do I remember being the darkest, most anxious moments from my adolescence and then infecting those experiences with horror? So it was I think for Mark, Adam and Scott, none of those characters are me, but they all reflect sides of me. They all reflect parts of me. So I, I, I was definitely writing about memory and relationships that I've I've had and known and things like that. It, it had to be grounded in some sense in order to work. That makes sense. And well, and they, they come across very authentically like that. I also think that 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 is a very it's especially because this, you know, you wrote this early on, you know, you you really have to put um, those those initial parts of you. And, and in some ways, kind of especially if you're dealing with things from adolescence and things like that, in some ways, it's I mean, it's the most authentic thing is to kind of exercise your own demons a little bit, you know, put some of yourself into every part of them. Definitely. Yeah. And <clears throat> it's interesting because I didn't even I just kind of took it for granted that this book was set in a version of the suburbs I remembered from my own adolescence. I intentionally left the the place ambiguous. I wanted to give I actually wanted to ambiguate the novel as much as possible and in, in as many ways as I could. Some people might argue that I went too far with the ambiguity, but that was the choice I made. Um, but it was interesting when I uh, Scarlett and I were reviewing the final manuscript. We were talking and we realized, you know, these kids don't have cell phones. They're not using social media. There aren't any of these kind of contemporary details. So we decided to include a title card at the beginning saying Suburban Somewhere 2003. So it kind of reflected the suburbs that I remembered. Oh, yeah, that that may, actually hadn't even struck, I guess, in you know, because um when you know when I was growing up of course we didn't really had, I mean I guess some people had cell phones by the time I was like in late high school and stuff like that but yeah it just struck me as very like I didn't it actually didn't even occur to me till just now when you said that that none of that was going yeah. on but but I'm glad those weren't you know there weren't those kind of distractions it just felt very much more present thank you yeah and I again I think it would be harder for me to I, it's not that I couldn't do it with some degree of research but to write about a contemporary teenage experience I just think it would be so much different um and something that I've reflected on when talking about this book is that like I mentioned earlier this is about a kid who wants to disappear in a way and to me that does fly in the face of a lot of contemporary teenage anxieties, which I think are, are largely about being seen, especially within the context of social media and things like that. So it's it's kind of like the antithesis of that in a strange sense. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one of the interesting things, you know, kind of about this novel, you know, um, like you said, kind of how, you know, he wants to disappear and now maybe it's more about being seen. But I also think, um, you know, as far as like the whole coming of age angle, because, you know, I ripped through this book in like a day because I just loved it. And the fact that it was kind of set when it was, I could relate to it because, you know, that was about like my 
teenage years as well. Um, but I like that, you know, it has those coming of age elements, but it's not like what you come to expect. Like usually with some of them, you know, it's kind of like growing pains and, you know, they're kind of going up against the darkness and it's kind of transformative in a way. Whereas with this one, it's a little bit darker and a little bit more pessimistic and it's not necessarily about you know going up against that darkness but kind of like interacting with it in a way um and i just thought that was kind of a unique and refreshing approach on that you know particular subgenre. thank you so much i really appreciate that yeah anytime Do you, um, I was kind of noticing too, when I, you know, when I was, cause I read, you had, you had that, uh, guest blog post on, I think where the reader grows, um, mm-hmm. about, about, um, the idea of obsession, uh, in it. So I, I thought, I thought it was interesting when you listed kind of the, you know, some of the, some of the authors in the books that you've already mentioned that were, um, that were, I guess, influential or, or that you uh, would compare to. But also, I mean, I thought it was interesting that Moby Dick in there was in there, but also the cipher. Um, that was the, that was such an interesting one. And it's one of those things I, I probably wouldn't necessarily have drawn that parallel, you know, until you mentioned it. But yeah, that that absolutely makes sense. Um, so I, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. Is that something that you had read earlier on or more like when you when it was re-released recently? Yeah, I, I read uh, Moby Dick before writing the novel, for sure. And I think Moby Dick is is almost definitely my favorite novel of all time. I think it just um, really encapsulates obsession within the, the, the context of literature in so many ways. And the cipher I, I read around the time I started drafting Shelter for the Damned. I, Kathy Koja was another one of those discoveries I had that was transformative i mean when i when i encountered her work it was it really was one of those holy shit moments as a reader and a writer like wow fiction can do this fiction can you know crawl under my skin in this way and and um so just in terms of the 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 distinctness of her point of view her prose style um and also her commitment to pessimism i think that's that's something that she shares in common with some of those writers I I mentioned earlier is that there there isn't often that transformation the kind of thing that that Rich was describing in her work that these characters often just you know it's a decline uh, character arc and and I think that's often where my plots tend to go is is a kind of uh, I call it the anti-hero's journey there is no transformation <laughs> there is no discovery there's just disintegration. Yeah, I can see that. Although, I mean, I, I guess I guess in part, again, it's it's a little bit of looking at the adolescent viewpoint of it because. And I, I guess in retrospect, I'm trying to think, you know, is it more them discovering themselves or is it more just like being struck, you know, consistently by. The, you know, the, the self-observation and the end sort of like looking back into adolescence like that, because it does seem. Yeah, I get I. Now I'm just rambling because I guess I'm going back and comparing it myself. But um, I, I guess part, you know, part of what I'm trying to say, too, is like uh, and this was another like I, I noticed because I was, you know, poking around your site and you'd had a, a review um, recently. And they they were talking about the um, 
how how things that happen in childhood and things that scared you or, or visions or something were could be very twisted and and you know taken uh to you know become looming in your life in a way that maybe wouldn't affect you that way as an adult but that how adults consistently forgot that kind of thing um so so maybe i'm more thinking of it you know in terms as an adult looking back on it and sort of like may you know reflecting on their characters in a ways in ways that they probably were not Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because there can, I think um, there maybe sometimes can be there's this kind of dewy eyed nostalgia in, in coming of age narratives um, that glosses over some of the uglier aspects of adolescence that, again, as you say, we maybe tend to maybe willfully forget. Um, I think, you know, again, someone who I, I studied closely and, and I think probably I, this is probably just true of every contemporary horror writer. Stephen King is just like the air we breathe by now. But <laughs> um, but books like Christine and It, to me, strike that balance. Um, he really does remember in vivid detail some of the uglier elements of, of being young and of uh, the powerlessness of being young, in a sense. Yes. that Well, and that was something else that I noted Um <laughs> you know, again, it's some, it's something that I I remember when I think of it, but it was very striking. Um, and I mean, it makes sense. It, it, it's just how the world is structured. But uh, the the total lack of control that adolescents have over their lives, you know, um, mm-hmm. their parents dictating everything that they do, who they're allowed to see, um, you know, what they're allowed to watch, what they're allowed to consume from a media standpoint. And again, you know, I mean, I've I've got a toddler. And I probably will continue to to try and institute a certain amount of control, you know, over things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it is it's such a I mean, it's just something to really consider um, because it is and maybe it's a sense of being, you know, having been an adult for so long and thinking about going back to those, you know, powerless days is part of what really helps create that element of horror, you know, because there's just such a there's such a lack of um, of personal autonomy. Yeah, exactly. And and especially if you are someone who, within a context like the suburbs in this novel, which are very prescriptive, very kind of uh, normative, normativity enforcing, if you're someone who just kind of falls outside of those outlines like Mark does, that's anxiety making in itself. So you take someone like that, who's also struggling with some psychological disturbances, we only get kind of glimpses of his past in that regard but we know he's a disturbed kid you put him in a situation where he feels maybe um an opportunity for power that he's never felt through something like the shack and to me i was like well there's a story here it it becomes a kind of power struggle between mark and the shack absolutely yeah and and uh, I guess you know his his father's an interesting character too because again in context of kind of the time frame here you know as as kind of thinking adults we look at a lot of his behavior and and are a little bit appalled by it you know but it's also the sort of thing you can just remember hearing if not from your own parents you know from your friends' parents or things like that okay. and 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 it just you know wouldn't be considered that out of line um, but but. I, I loved the way that those like kind of early memories were woven in for Mark and you really, you know, you really start seeing how that level of powerlessness and, and unpredictability would have an effect on, on a kid. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and kind of like you said, Laurel, kind of with that, and, you know, like the whole suburban theme, like one of the things that was interesting was, you know, kind of the the different relationships that each of the main characters kind of had with their own fathers. Um, some of the, you know, they, they kind of vary widely. Um, I don't want to spoil kind of any of the relationships, but... You know, like Mark, he has his own relationship with his father and so on and so on. And initially you kind of see these interactions and you're like, okay, well, maybe Mark, you know, has it a little better than his friends. But like in some way, there's, you know, a little bit of like that darkness, because even Mark, you know, when we initially kind of see that interaction with him and his father, at first it kind of seems lighthearted. And you're like, oh, okay, you know, they kind of have a good relationship, but, you know, the further you get into it, you see that, you know, Mark's dad, who, you know, everyone kind of looks at like as kind of this lovable guy, almost, he has like these brief flashes of like where he almost, you know, loses control and then, you know, either reigns it in himself or he's aware of how things appear to, you know, his wife. And um, I was just kind of curious, you know, how you, if you consciously did um, or if it just kind of naturally occurred, like kind of the creation of these different relationships between father and son. Yeah, I definitely wanted to have three primary characters who have varying forms of fraught relationships with their fathers. Um, Partially for, for narrative purposes. Um, and then when I was looking back at the novel in, in later drafts, um, it dawned on me that the novel was, you know, making some kind of observations about masculine conditioning or um, enforcement of uh, quote unquote normal masculinities in this kind of environment. And then I, I tried to um, uh, allow that to shine as much as possible in the later drafts. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad that that came through. And I, I definitely wanted to convey an environment where there's always at least a threat of violence. There's this kind of imposition of normalcy. But under that imposition of normalcy, there's this kind of broiling undercurrent of potential disaster or violence. Now, that's very effective. And I like I like that phrase, the imposition of normalcy. Um, because, and in particular, you know, in creating that tension and that sense of horror, I think that that is really effective because it's almost, I mean, Adam's dad is frightening, Mm -hmm. um, but it's almost, it's almost more unsettling to have that mercurial, you know, just, just sense of that. And the, um, and also the really, you know, kind of slimy, oh, I'm just kidding. Ew, don't kid like that with (laughs) Your yeah, yeah, yeah. Horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's 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 uh I I kind of tried to um uh amplify his kind of goofiness or gentility in later drafts because I did find that dissonance more interesting. And I also thought it helped better separate him from Adam's dad, who's more uh forthright. Although Adam's dad also has this kind of slimy performative hey i'm one of the boys thing that he plays too um 
Yeah. And in terms of that idea of imposing normalcy, I've, I've mentioned this in a few interviews, but when I was talking about the book with my friend Danny Goldhaber, who directed Cam, he said the issue with the suburban environment is that it imposes normalcy, not harmony. So normalcy is prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Harmony is kind of allowing for different forms of being and different forms of presenting oneself to to interact. Oh, yeah. And I've not heard it presented that way, but that that is, yeah, that's that's very on point with it. And I, probably also in large part what makes, um, you know, a suburban setting for horror can be extremely effective in that fashion. Hmm. Yeah, definitely, because I, I think you know, fundamentally what horror is often doing is um, kind of uh, picking away at the veneers of polite society and, and, and calling us to look at the things we maybe don't want to look at that we're aware of, but we maybe close the closet door on, uh, I guess, to use a, a metaphor from the, the book <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah, well, I think that, oh, sorry, Rich, go ahead. No, you, no, you're good if you had something. No, I'm just, I'm actually just sort of like plunging back down the rabbit hole of, of suburban <laughs> horror and all the different <laughs> yeah. know, ways that can be. Because, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I totally agree with you. Um, Just because like, and that's the other thing, you know, sometimes like normally, like suburban small town horror at least for me i think you know like oh a quaint town where like horror comes and at least in my opinion with uh shelter for the damned it's kind of like it's not kind of like oh the horror already is coming here it's already there um it just might you know people just kind of turn a blind eye to it or it's like oh that's not my family or what have you and so it, it kind of might seem like that on the outside, but that the darkness is already there. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's I think that's exactly kind of what I was striving for in a sense is, is yeah, we, we arrive in an environment that's already fraught with conflict, fraught with tension, fraught with problems. Um, and I, I think I in terms of depicting this environment and adolescent experience, I was influenced a lot by. Um, the films of Larry Clark, actually, films like Kids and more so Bully mm-hmm. and Ken Park, um, which I think uh, do that very effectively in terms of um, depicting already present horrors within these kinds of banal, quote unquote, idyllic spaces. Yeah, and and think, you know, again, like. I'm sure every generation does this, but thinking back on the things that, again, seemed banal and seemed, you know, normal and like something you should accept at the time and looking back being like, wow, all of that was really horrible. I really don't want to do that to my kids. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, just things that you observe, again, that that seemed like they were. Um, I, and it's it's such an interesting thing. Now, I think we talked about that some with um, Chad Lutsky. I don't know how much of his stuff you've read. I haven't read any uh, Chad Lutsky yet, but I've I've heard very good things. He's on the infinite queue. I, I will get <laughs> to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of. I think one of the things that he is, you know, really effective at, and um, 
one I'm thinking of in particular is the same deep water as you, you know, as is kind of, it's obviously a totally different tone. uh, But, but there's a lot of, you know, kind of adolescent coming of age things here. And I feel like he's somebody that in particular for someone who's, you know, already pretty much raised almost three kids to adulthood, like, he has like very vivid memories and understanding of, you know, not just the things that happened to him, but the way he felt at the time. Mm. Um, and I feel like that just, you know, comes across really well in his writing. And, um, I'm also one of those horrible people that relates everything to my parenting. Cause I'm constantly thinking about it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's very effective in writing and it's something that just sort of like, as, as my son gets older, I don't know, it's just interesting. I feel, and I felt this way when, when I was, you know, helping raise my stepson too, it was like my memories of that time, again, not just, ha- not just what happened, but how I felt about it seemed like a lot more present than the other adults. Mm. I was always like, you seriously don't remember feeling like this is exactly why he's doing that. You know, he feels like this, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe writers were better at it. I'd love to believe that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like at, for me as a writer, part of the the goal is to perpetually exist in like a 16 year old's mindset. That's like the ideal to me. You know, if I can write about monsters and uh, live in my imagination as much as possible, that's fine by me. That's kind of the goal. <laughs> I, I think you were a much more productive 16-year-old than I was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I assure you I was not. I assure you I was not. I spent too much time in the principal's office. Uh, well, you know, but again, you were just, you're storing up things for, for the stories you would later write. So That's it's, right. it's all for experience. It was research. Kind of, exactly. It's <laughs> cool. You're doing something with this. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Mike, um, one thing, um, you know, like I've noticed with this book and, um, you, you did mention that earlier interview with Into the Void, which I did happen to see, um, you kind of mentioned that you were drawn to horror that's, you know, kind of written off, whether it be, you know, tasteless or trashy or things like that. And, you know, I was just curious, you know, kind of what draws you to that? And, you know, is there a book, you know, like maybe it's a favorite or something that is tagged with that label that like maybe people think is like, oh, that's just garbage. But you feel like that's kind of an unfair label for it. Man, I'll have to think about books that have earned that label. Um, But I, I think what it is, I often think that the things that are popularly received or by popular consensus are well regarded at the time of their release. Often they're either a few steps behind the current moment or they're just responding within safe parameters to the present moment. So if something is genuinely provocative and disturbing, um, even offensive, though that, that, that is often not received well in the moment, but often those are the kinds of films and books that to me are saying something uh, urgent or um, something true in a sense, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of, I mean, in terms of films, I think a lot of Eli Roth's stuff is unfairly dismissed. I think 
Um, you know, a film like Knock Knock, which was very, very universally dismissed, uh, unfortunately, I think was um, observing contemporary realities in ways that were provocative, disruptive, disturbing, complicated. Um, so that film comes to mind. I, in terms of books, I'm drawing a bit of a blank. I'm, I've already brought him up a couple times, but Stephen King's Dreamcatcher is often written off, and I think that's a really yeah. great book about like the pain of inhabiting a body um, and the kind of uh, also the pain of exploring memories like that. That's very much a book about memory and about shared trauma um, that comes to mind. Uh, yeah, those are the two that come to the top of my head right now. I'm sure I'll think of 10 others after this. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting though. Like uh, when you mentioned like Dreamcatcher, um, because you know, I started the horror bookshelf, I can't even remember, I want to say like maybe 2013, 2014, maybe even earlier, you know, but prior to that, I wasn't kind of aware of, you know, the whole, obviously like New York Times, but the whole like book reviewing thing. So, you know, I was going through, and or indie horror for that matter. So I was kind of just going through, I was getting back into reading because um, for a while I took a break and I was reading some of Stephen King's books and I picked up Dreamcatcher because, you know, the whole alien angle um, and I really loved it. And it wasn't until much later when, you know, I kind of got more involved with the horror community and people talking about it where people were like, oh, you know, that book's crap. You know, I loved it. Um, I didn't quite pick up on, you know, like some of the other stuff about like the pain of dealing with memories. But I, too, felt like, you know, it was kind of unfairly judged. And, you know, it's kind of a shame because I think there are a lot of good moments in there, but it seems like all anyone mentions really when they say dream catcher is shit weasels <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well i'm glad to hear there is one other fan in the world. i'm sure there are lots of other fans of it. but uh yeah i mean even just like the yeah the crazy like scatological stuff in that book is really interesting to me and and i i think stephen king also was um delving into something really uncomfortable and really taboo and inventive ways. I, I love that book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I will go to bat for Dreamcatcher and shit weasels. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how are you going to not, you know, mention the shit weasels? I mean, you talk about Dreamcatcher. That's clearly <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, I, I will jump on the bandwagon with you guys. I probably didn't give it, you know, as much thought as to what exactly was involved with it, but I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was very different. And sort of the, you know, the the conversation in his head with with the inhabitant in his body. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, I mean, when you, you know, when you know, of course, King's background at that time that he was he was dealing with cancer and, and that sort of thing. Like, I mean, it, you know, yeah, exploring that kind of thing, exploring that mortality aspect of it and the discomfort, you know, of all that kind of thing of just invasive species, whether it's, you know, something living or medical, um, I mean, it's visceral. Um, I don't even know if that's a pun. It might be, but uh, it was unintentional. <laughs> so. <laughs> but but yeah, and actually, I didn't think the movie adaptation was terrible. I didn't think it was really quite the same story, um, mm -hmm. but I still thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I like it, too. I think it's yeah, it's it's also under underrated. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting that King 
you know, so so shortly after the accident, um, if I recall correctly, that was the first book he wrote after the the accident with the van that hit him, and he couldn't um, sit up at a typewriter, so he wrote the book by hand, which is interesting. Oh yeah, boy. That's, I mean, especially when you spend your career doing that. I, and I've seen complaints, you know, from people that he's maybe spent too much time focusing on that after the fact and that it, it leads into too much stuff. But I don't know how it couldn't, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's and I feel like all and a lot of the best advice, um, you know, that I read about writing and, and, and what makes effective storytelling is, I mean, right, what you know is what you always hear. But it's it's not just that it is like it's putting your feelings into it. It's putting the things that make you uniquely you and how you view and see the world. And I think that's got to be in large part what makes it effective, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm always surprised when people complain about authors who, you know, when, when they'll say, oh, this writer has been here before or whatever. To me, part of the the great pleasure of, of connecting with an author's work is seeing them re-exploring um, ideas and themes through different angles and through different lenses. I think, you know, most writers are doing that to some degree, I think. Yeah. And, and it was something, well, it, in, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm a newer writer myself. So sometimes it's, it's very encouraging, you know, because you, you hear a lot of things that are very derisive about, oh, there's no new ground to travel. You know, every story's already been told. And, and when you're dealing with that, in addition to, and oh, by the way, please don't ever write anything remotely like what you wrote before, or we're all going to be looking at you sideways, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I feel, I feel like the, the more sort of advanced advice I've heard on that and, and some of the better things that I've heard by writers that I really admire, you know, Laird Barron um, and John Langan. And it was something that Keith Rawson said too, when he was on talking about road seven is he was like, oh, I've written the same character for like three books in a row. You know, mm-hmm. he's and he's just like and but but it's so funny because when you read it, it's like you look back, you're like, oh, I mean, I guess. But it's, you know, it's never the same guy, really. But he's just like he, it's I think he compared it to be rich to like uh, to like an artist painting something and the way they'll they'll paint, you know, a scene from from many different views and many different aspects and like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, zoomed yeah. in and zoomed out. And I, that was really striking to me and also encouraging, I thought. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're so right that what matters more than anything, I mean, certainly what I look for when I'm reading fiction is perspective. If you have uh, a perspective that is yours, uniquely yours, that and that feels authentic and um, that feels engaged and exciting in a sense, to me, that matters more than anything. I, I, I care more about that than I care about plot or you know, a genre or anything like that. It's just, does this author have a point of view that I haven't encountered before? That's, that's, that's what I look for in fiction. I agree. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and Oh, go ahead, Laurel. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, you know, that's kind of like, I totally agree with that. Like, um, and going back to another, author that laurel had mentioned like keith rawson like reading that it's definitely a unique perspective um like that book road seven i think you would really dig it like he he manages to take like this completely crazy idea about a man 
um, teaming up with a uh, cryptozoologist who may or may not have been abducted by aliens. And they go off like in search of a unicorn um, based off a video they're sent. And like when you read the synopsis, you're initially kind of drawn in by like, wow, this sounds like the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, but when you actually read it, you know, it does have those elements, but it also has like, you know, some really like deep emotional, you know, character stuff. And it's not, you know, quite as outlandish as you thought. So, um, you know, books like that or uh, The Seventh Mansion, I'm going to mess up her name, but uh, Mary's Mayher, I think is her name. You know, that's another book that, like you said, it's kind of like an interesting perspective. Um, and it's like when you come across stuff like that where, you know, you go in expecting one thing and you get another, like that's usually some of the most exciting reading experiences that I've had. Totally. Yeah. Or like like I said, the first time I discovered Kathy Koja's work, it's just like there is nobody yeah. who writes like that. I've never encountered that voice so she can write anything and I'll, I'll read it you know it doesn't matter genre plot whatever that voice is what i'm there for yeah Absolutely. yeah she's amazing yeah she's she's on a whole other level <laughs> <clears throat> well we kind of like briefly mentioned you know film adaptation with that uh, with Dreamcatcher, but in particular because you have so much experience you know and looking at film and film critique and and that sort of thing um when you think about what work you would like adapted, you know, what would you, I guess, what would you choose and, you know, how would you kind of go about that? What would be your dream setup? Hmm. Um, a new kind of drug could be cool. Um, shelter for the damned would be, I think that there's a lot you could do with shelter for the damned. Um, and the auteur, another story from, uh, darkest hours I've always thought would make a really cool film because it has like a film within the narrative. So I think you could make an interesting film within a film concept with that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, those, those three I think would be really visual and, and you could flesh out the characters from either of those stories pretty well, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who would you, who would you work with or is that <laughs> oh, God. too hard to decide? Oh th- yeah. There's so many great people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's so many people in the genre right now who I think are awesome. I mean, I love um, Rob Zombie, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, Eli Roth, uh, Danny Goldhaber. I want to see him do more stuff. Um, I, Jamie Blanks, I just connected with him recently. Um, I, You know, he's brilliant, too. Um, Johannes Roberts, I actually think, is really great. The guy who did... These are films that I think in maybe in some circles have been unfairly written off. He did The Strangers, Pray at Night, and 47 Meters Down Uncaged. I just think he has such a, like, beautiful visual sense. Uh, So any of those people or anyone else, if anyone wants to make a movie out of my work, (laughs) uh, you know, the line is open. (laughs) <laughs> well, how how involved would you be in something like that? Do you think would you are you interested in screenwriting? Have you done any of that? Or would it be more just the kind of thing where you like cheerfully, you know, sign over and maybe go visit the set some? I'd love to explore that world if the opportunity arose. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was in high school, I, I did some uh, bad screenwriting. Um <laughs> 
but I, I haven't I haven't done it in any like real formal capacity. But I, I, I you know, I'd love to try it for sure. That's excellent. Yeah, I think it's it, it's just such a I don't know, such a cool way to be involved. in it. I don't think I have that particular skill set, but, um, you know, just kind of in, uh, observing as we've all been sort of like watching, you know, Max Booth's uh, um yeah book movie come to fruition it's it's just so interesting that he's been involved in that and that's that's you know that's something that i could that i could really see you doing with it you know and in particular you just i feel like you have the expertise and the voice to be able to do that um so it would be really cool to see i think thank you so much i would love to see that happen too i'm so happy for max that's so cool it really is i feel like it's like a giant win for all of us. hell yeah. yeah 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 yeah, and I, I think, you know, from my experience, the, the horror world has just generally been like a really collaborative and supportive community. I really do believe that. It might sound corny, but I, I think like it's 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 unique in that sense. You don't see that in other genres or um other writing scenes from from what I've experienced. It's 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 yeah, it's awesome in that way. I, I agree. And I also, I mean, I, I want to point out, Mike, I feel like you are a big part of that. Um, you, you're you very uh, just vocal and very active in support of other authors. Um, and I just, it was one of the things, you know, when I was first kind of poking around on on the horror community a couple of years ago and figuring things out and sort of watching to see what people did, it was like, yeah, okay, th- you know, this is the kind of thing that, I mean, that I feel like just builds everybody up, you know? to because it is it is fun to sell your own book it's also super fun when you introduce someone to another author that you love and they sell a book because of it it's just i mean it's it's awesome across the board absolutely yeah exactly like you said it's a win for everybody i mean you know horror um connecting with people in in any sense i think is it's that's just a positive thing spread the horror spread the horror I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that kind of, I mean, it sounds, it sounds very much like it's, uh, you know, early embedded in you, but, but in particular, I was, I was wondering what did originally bring you to horror and, and what made you, um, feel like that's, you know, what you wanted to pursue from a writing standpoint. I've always been interested in, um, the dark and the grotesque, like as a kid, I, I drew a lot as a kid. I drew a lot of fantasy and sci-fi stuff, too. So I've always been interested in speculative genres, I guess. Um, I, the first novel I wrote as a kid was a very unreadable ripoff of both Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what very, a mashup, though. I <laughs> know. Uh, it was very imaginatively titled Long Ago. <laughs> uh so that that's where I started so I you know I started with like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien um but then I I discovered uh R.L. Stein and King when I was probably like 12 um but I was already drawing monsters and writing scary stories but before I encountered those guys so it's just I don't know some pathological sickness I have um <laughs> yeah I'm not sure what what that's all about weirdly enough actually i also saw the movie bride of chucky quite young and that made an impact on me um so that's 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 the truth that is it's really funny that you say that about chucky because it was so my parents like 
like so many of our parents just kind of really let us watch whatever. So I watched a lot of stuff like really early that I shouldn't have. But for some reason, I desperately wanted to watch Chucky and it just like never came about. I don't know if they didn't want to watch it themselves or whatever. We never got to watch it. And like one of the strongest, most poignant disappointments in my childhood was being at my aunt's house trying to find a movie. And she and we're like, do you have Chucky? And she's like, oh, my gosh, yes, I have Chucky. I love Chucky. We're like, what? You're so much better than we thought. <laughs> Fuck, yeah, line up Chucky. Like, we're all losing our minds. And yeah. she's talking to my mom. And my mom's like, is it real violent? She's like, no, he just does a lot of, like, karate and stuff. I was like, wait a second. And it ends up being fucking Chuck Norris. And, like, I, I mean, I think I just, I think I died a little, you know, at that I'm moment. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Damn. I, I felt so betrayed. And, in fact, I still feel a little betrayed now that I think about it. <laughs> have you have you cured that wound? Like, have you since gone out and watched the Chucky films? I, I did. I watched the first one. Um, not sure that if I, if I ever watched it any more than that, because I think, well, you know, by <laughs> was gone by then. I don't know. <laughs> and you got to be careful with kids around the house. You can't just be watching Chucky all the time. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> My, it's funny you say that, because um, I, I have um, one of the movies that I was like given for Christmas, and like one of those little Funko figures, and somehow my daughter, you know, found out that that was Chucky, and she begs and begs me to watch Chucky, and she's only four, and I'm like, I don't think that's a good <laughs> idea. That's old enough. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I love Chucky. I'm like, no. Just make sure she's not talking about Chuck Norris, you know. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, Yeah, I saw The Exorcist way too young as well. I I had to sneak down and watch that. There was a a special called, I don't know if if you would have had it too. It, It was called Friday Night Frightmare. They would play like two horror films back to back. So it'd be... Um, I don't think I made it to The Exorcist 2 because I was like physically shaking after the first one. I but <laughs> they did Pet Cemetery and Pet Cemetery 2. Um, and I, I definitely snuck down and watched a lot of those things too young. I know we didn't have that because if we did, there's no way I would have been watching Perfect Strangers and Step by Step on Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> All of <over> that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how old were you when you were watching The Exorcist? I think I was 12. 12, yeah. I think I was probably 12. So, like, you know, I wasn't four. That's Chucky age. <laughs> four is Chucky age. Four is Chucky age. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. He's about eight, you know. Exactly, yeah. When you're one year old, I don't know, you start with, like, uh Cujo or something I'm not sure it's got a dog <laughs> in it <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny because it's it's one of those things it's like um it's kind of like hot sauce with me like I I'm not allowed to to make judgment calls like that because I don't taste heat in things <laughs> yeah. and it's the same thing with horror so it's like I have like like I'll carry guilt for the rest of my life about giving my son like a bite of like this you know, Mexican casserole I had made and it just had like, <laughs> like greens. It was just salsa verde. And I was like, no, it's not spicy. And like the poor thing, like tears are rolling out of his eyes. He's so betrayed that his mother handed him this thing. Like my husband is just like pouring milk down his throat. And he's like, you don't get to make these calls anymore. I'm like, you make a really good point. <laughs> and so horror is kind of the same way. Like I just, 
it's not, you know, I, I, I definitely appreciate the visuals. I, I think it's just like, I mean, like most of us, I don't always think, you know, about what's going to affect somebody with a possibly a more tender psyche than mine. So we're case hardened. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah, I actually um, the first time I taught English composition, I was really adventurous with my curriculum and I taught a lot of film criticism. And I remember I played part of this documentary uh, from Eli Roth's uh, History of Horror series on mm-hmm. horror films. And there were like audible like gasps and groans from the class and and like pleas for mercy. And I actually just like turned, I because I, I, I'm like, oh, it's just a documentary. I'm like, oh, there's Tom Savini special effect. Um, but I had to turn off. I was like, oh, sh- I'm so desensitized. I don't even think about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was a that was a that was a teaching moment. That was a learning moment for me. <laughs> well, how, was it was it college classes? Yeah, it was college. So I was like, yeah, oh, it'll be tell fine. them to suck it up. Tell yeah. them to suck it up. They're old enough. When they're, they're old screaming enough. in terror, though, you know, like people are hearing it down the hall. I don't know. They're probably like, what's going on in Thorne's class? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I'm signing up the next semester. <laughs> I teach the black cat within the first couple of days, the Edgar Allan Poe story. Oh, nice. Yeah, I have a lot of fun. I like to uh, to corrupt as much as possible. <laughs> That's, that is awesome. And as a former college student, yeah, that would have been appreciated. I, I, we watched um, I said The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Uh, in like one of my English classes in college. And I was what we affectionately termed an older, wiser learner because I was like 27, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm in there with all these like kids and and I'm finding myself have to like explain, you know, explain all these concepts. And I think I was like the not fun old lady, but it's like, they're like freaking Mm -hmm. out about something. I'm like, that's what's called a nominal verdict in law. And and it's like, oh God, please stop talking Hightower. But you know, they asked. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen that one yet. That's uh, Scott Derrickson, right? I am not sure. I am really terrible with knowing who does what, and I should. I think it's the guy who did Sinister. I liked Sinister. Oh, Sinister's oh, yeah. good. Yeah, there's some really great visuals in that. Yeah, I um, that. Yeah, and uh, Exorcism of Emily Rose, I, I would I would recommend that one. It is it's interesting because. I feel like that's a that's a big um, hurdle to get over with any sort of possession story is how do you tell that without being too derivative from what I would consider the source mm-hmm. material, the exorcist, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think they do, I think they do a good job with that. Yeah, the exorcism subgenre, I guess, is so that's a that's a tall order to do something new. I mean, I think you know, the, the original novel and film, The Exorcist, just feel so kind of like mic drop statements in that subgenre. Yes. I would be yeah. scared to go there. Yeah. Another one that's pretty good. And I think it kind of fits, though. It's a little bit different. Um, and I didn't know it. I It was one of those things that I think I saw it on Netflix was uh, The Taking of Deborah Logan. Ooh. Some yeah. of the some of those images still stick with me to this day. <laughs> yes, yeah. Have you seen that one, Mike? I have not. No, I've I've heard oh. uh, heard good things, but haven't got to it yet. It is it is very good. Yeah, 
And um, Rich, I think that you will totally understand this when I say that volunteering at the nursing home after that was a little bit creepier than it had been before. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> it's, well, and it's it's one of those things. I actually really, really loved doing that. And I um, I met some great people, had some wonderful conversations and all that kind of stuff. But I did also uh, have a woman that I approached and came to talk to. She was bedridden. They told me she needed a visitor. And I just sort of like was going through my spiel and she tried to spit at me and mm. then she started under her breath doing what sounded like an incantation of some time kind. Out so I left. <laughs> yeah, I left. And but, you know, it just reminded me, I'm like, you know, just because a nurse says someone wants a visitor, that may not be the truth. So it <laughs> she may have just really been wanting her time alone. And I would like to respect that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and kind of touching on, on films like we have been, you know, kind of what was it like to get a blurb from Jeffrey Reddick, the creator of oh, yeah. Destination? And how did that even come about? Yeah, that was I mean, I'm still reeling from that because I love Final Destination. Um, and, you know, Jeffrey has just done so much great stuff in the genre. He's he's such a you know, he's a vital presence in the, the genre world. So I was like beyond flattered. We, Jeffrey and I connected through Twitter originally. Um, yeah. And, and it just kind of came about that way. And uh, I feel incredibly lucky and he's the nicest guy. He's so supportive. And um, he also wrote final destination. He turned death into a slasher villain. I mean, <laughs> You can't get yeah. better than that. Yeah, I love that movie. It's like a major influence. Yeah, that's well, I mean, that's excellent. And it's yeah, I mean, you've just gotten so much good press on it. So many good reviews already. That's just I mean, it's it's definitely earns it. Um, But I'm just I'm really excited for you. This is so great for, you know, for a debut mm -hmm. novel to come out like this and just hit the ground running. I'm I'm super excited. Thank you so much. Yeah, so far people have been merciful. I'm, I mean, the bad reviews are out there, I'm sure, if I do some digging. But for now, <laughs> yeah. people are uh, taking mercy on me. So that's nice. Yeah. And that, and, you know, like Laurel said, that is awesome. And uh, like you said, Final Destination, I think it was two. That scene with the log truck, to this day, when I drive on the highway, if I'm behind one, <laughs> I get in the other lane. <laughs> it's ingenious and and apparently jeffrey came up with that visual concept oh that's oh, wow. awesome yeah, yeah so i mean it, he's 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 created these concepts that are just like in the collective consciousness now that's so crazy to think about isn't it yeah just how much effect you can have you know on something like that i mean just like the lexicon and and everything else Ah, oh, that's nice yeah yeah There's, it's Career oh. goals. <laughs> I, I know, right? Yeah, one can only wish. Well, is there um is there anything you want to tell us about? Of course, you know, you just released a book and it's like, so what's next? But <laughs> <laughs> I I know that you you mentioned you had some other releases coming out this year. So clearly, you know, you've covered all your ground. Um, is there anything in particular that you're working on or that you want to work on that you're excited about? Um I hope I make it out of this novel in progress alive. Uh, so send thoughts and prayers or incantations, if that's your thing. 
or you can spit at me. I don't know. I'll take anything. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Thoughts and prayers on that, I guess. And, um, I have a, an essay in, um, there's a collection on Toby Hooper coming out through the university of Texas press in, I want to say June. So I'm hyped about that too. That's going to be, I'm really thrilled to be a part of that. And, uh, Otherwise, I'm just like sitting here in my apartment writing weird shit and uh, hoping this uh, vaccine thing works out for everybody. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is that is awesome. I'm just I'm yeah. Sorry. Sorry to keep gushing, but I just I I really (laughs) just love, you know, I you know, I loved your short, sharp shocks and um, was really excited to get hold of your novel. And I think it's it's earned all of its accolades. I think it's going to just take off like a bat out of hell. And I'm, I'm so excited to know you have all this other stuff coming up this year. That's fantastic. Keep kicking ass. Thank you. And same to you. Yeah. You're, you're doing huge things too. And thanks for everything you do too, Rich. Uh, yeah. You're a fantastic reviewer and, and I've always appreciated your enthusiasm and support and everything. So big fans of both of you. Well, thank thanks, you so Mike. much. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We had a great time talking to you. Um, I feel like I, I learned a great deal. So if I can ever yeah. audit one of your classes, I'm probably just going to hop on and, <laughs> and, and try and learn. This is great. So stop by anytime we're, we're teaching, we're, we're doing Frankenstein right now. So that's fun. Oh, nice. That's very cool. Good book. Excellent. All right. Well, we really appreciate it. Um, you're welcome back anytime and we, we can't wait to, uh, to keep promoting your stuff and everybody go, go pick up um, Mike's new book. And it is Shelter for the Damned, right? That's yeah. the one. Yeah. yeah Thank okay. you so Thanks. much. I called it House of Ruin all day. I don't know why. And and <laughs> I was like, God, I really have to correct that before. We get to That's you a good title. <laughs> you know, I like Shelter for the Damned better. I think you went with a good one there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. You have an excellent night. You too. All right. Good Thanks. night. Good Thanks. night. Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing?